Our next speaker will be Dr. Dominic Johnson. So Dominic received a DPhil from Oxford in evolutionary biology and a PhD uh, from Geneva in political science. He's currently reader in the Department of Politics and International Relations in the University of Edinburgh. And he's been a lecturer in Harvard and Princeton and a member of the Princeton Society of Fellows. So he works at the intersection of evolutionary biology and international relations. And we're extremely pleased to have him here today to talk about religion uh, as an adaptation for intergroup conflict. And I'm going to offer some general um, comments afterwards. So thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Hi, everyone. <coughs> so yes, don't be too uh, misled by this. I did my uh, PhD Oxford in the Department of Zoology, so my background is very much in evolutionary biology, and I'm now spending my career trying to convince scientific scientists that it's a useful uh, discipline for them to look at as well. Uh, today I'm going to talk about um, this idea that religion might be an adaptation for intergroup conflict, among other things. So a little bit of context, um, we have this project on the evolution of religion, uh, which involves um, six interdisciplinary researchers, including Jeff Schloss, uh, who's here. Um, and the basic idea is that if religious beliefs and behaviours promoted survival and reproduction in our ancestral past, um, then they may have been favoured by natural selection over human evolutionary history. Um, this would mean that um, religious beliefs and behaviours are adaptive, and that religion evolved as a natural product of Darwinian selection. Um, most of this project has been focused on cooperation, and what religion does to promote cooperation. Um, but one question that remains is, well, what's all this cooperation for? Um, which is not perhaps uh, so clear and certainly not as well studied. Um, every day in the morning I walk past this structure, which is Edinburgh Castle, which reminds me that uh, humans aren't always uh, cooperative with each other. Uh, so I've become more and more interested in Darwinian um, perspectives on uh, intergroup conflict as well. And one thing that strikes me, if you look back at the history of, of religions, is the commonality of links between religion and very explicitly with war. <coughs> this is Ares, the Greek god of war. Here's the Roman god of war, Mars. Um, this is not a phenomenon of antiquity. If you go to um, older civilizations around the world, you also find gods of war in Mexico, uh, in New Zealand, and in Hawaii, for example. <coughs> so <coughs> this suggests to me that there might be something very specific about the connection between religion and, and conflict. Here's my talk outline. Um, let's just think about that a little bit. Do all religions have gods of war? Is this a universal uh, trait? Um, I want to unpack my original question um, about whether religion is an adaptation for intergroup conflict. What does that actually mean? Um, I want to make this point that nasty behavior can be adaptive, and I think this is something which is lost in the literature sometimes. Um, then I'll talk a little bit about a hypothesis about religion in the evolutionary history of, of war. Um, and then more specifically about the mechanisms. What is it about religion that might improve military effectiveness? And by that I mean um, how good you are at fighting. Um, some examples of those potential mechanisms. A little case study, which I found uh, quite interesting. And then a little comment about um, how this might play out in, in modern war, uh, particularly with the rise of irregular warfare in the 21st century. So first of all, do all religions have gods of war? Uh, I think the answer is no. Um, however, if you look a little more deeply, what's striking to me is that there are related concepts which uh, arise in pretty much every religion I've looked at. Um, so in polytheistic religions, you do very often have a god of war. He might be a god of something else as well, but it's quite a common phenomenon. In monotheistic religions, um, God is not always perceived as a god of war, but there are conceptions of him um, as a warrior god, quite commonly, 
and not only in um, Christian traditions. Um, if you look at indigenous religions around the world, um, it's not going to be about God necessarily, but the involvement of supernatural agents such as ancestors and spirits is uh, very significant, and often very significant uh, when you're about to fight a war, when you are fighting a war, when you have fought a war. Um, in addition to that, I think there are um, lots of different elements of religion um, which are potentially very important in understanding intergroup conflict, um, which range from beliefs about one's own in-group, the out-group, what the purpose of your conflict might be, um, very interesting examples of expectations of protection from supernatural agents during war. Um, this is true in, in, in today even. Um, and about victory. In addition to that, there are lots of very important practices um, which surround intergroup conflict and war in particular. Rituals, um, standards which are carried into conflict, offerings made to the gods before and after war. And um, apart from all of that, the rules of war. So we uh, went into Iraq supposedly following uh, um, uh, just uh, war tradition, um, widely interpreted um, and misinterpreted according to some. But what's interesting to me is that we have rules of law which are actually founded in religion. And again, it's not just just war theory which comes from uh, the Christian tradition, but also you can find rules of war in Islam and other religions too. So I think we can't get away from the fact that um, there are very strong links between religion and war in some form or another. Again, uh, common across time and space, it's not a phenomenon of modern religions, it's not a phenomenon of the West. Um, you find many of these things across all of the world, uh, major world religions, they're called across all of um, the ancient religions, early civilizations, and across what I think is very important, the indigenous religions, which uh, offer us a little window onto our evolutionary past. So it's not so simple that all religions have gods of war, but the point is, um, I think religion has a lot to do with war. Let me unpack my question, though, before I go any further. I asked, is religion an adaptation for intergroup conflict? And by religion, I don't mean all of religion. I like to say religious beliefs and behaviours, um, to break it down into um, components which can be uh, looked at individually. And again, not all religions. People like to say, well, I've got an example of religion which has nothing to do with war, it doesn't have a god of war. Fine. Um, like all things, there are going to be exceptions. What about this word adaptation? Is religion an adaptation for intergroup conflict? Um, maybe this is superfluous, but I thought it might be important to spell this out at the beginning. So we can imagine that a trait or a behaviour might have Darwinian fitness benefits either today or in the past. Okay? And this gives rise to four categories of behaviour. Something that is adaptive today and was adaptive in the past, we call adaptive. If it was adaptive in the past but it turns out to be maladaptive today, you can think of the appendix, for example, because it sometimes kills you. Um, that was an adaptation in the past, but it's maladaptive today. And I don't want to get into these, but they, here are uh, filling out the other boxes are the kinds of uh, examples of traits which can have differential uh, Darwinian fitness costs uh, today and in the past. But the point, which I think is important to bear in mind uh, today and tomorrow and Wednesday, is that both of these are adaptations. They are things that evolved because of Darwinian natural selection in the past. Whether they help you or not today is irrelevant. It's an adaptation if it evolved because it was adaptive in the past. Um, finally, uh, this term intergroup conflict, what do I mean about that? Again, I think very important. Um, we're not always talking about violence and war. I think war, violence, aggression and competition are all very significant processes which may have 
um, interacted with um, human social evolution. Um, so um, even if you don't want to think too much about um, a very powerful role for war itself, if you just think about intergroup competition, all those times and years that go past when you're not actually at war, there are still many things about your social organisation which change radically because of the threat of war. And this is perhaps an influence from my uh, uh, new colleagues in political science, it, that, that international security is about the balance of power, preparing for war, even when war is rare. It's still a very important process. So <clears throat> perhaps this is obvious to everyone, but one thing that strikes me, particularly in the evolutionary um, uh, theories of religion literature, is that there seems to be this sort of split that people who argue that religion is adaptive to say things like it promotes cooperation, promotes solidarity, promotes health, uh, helps people cope with loss, and so on. People who argue that religion is non-adaptive tend to focus on the negative, nasty outcomes, like war, um, its role in, in terrorism, perhaps the fact that it's anti-scientific, um, impinges on human rights, and may even uh, be classed as some sort of cultural uh, disease. Um, what strikes me, though, is that there's no reason why something can't be adaptive and nasty. So, for example, uh, as Robin already suggested, it could be that these things um, are adaptations um, for war, for intergroup conflict. So we can have adaptive traits uh, which are nasty. Okay, religion in the evolutionary history of war. There's quite a lot of literature now, um, most of it has come out quite recently, which demonstrates, I think beyond all reasonable doubt, that humans have been subject to very severe intergroup conflict um, for as long as we can see in human history. Um, these are three of the books which um, go into this topic, which are very um, uh, What's Kiwi's first name? This is a famous book called, uh, now called uh, Warfare Before Civilization. Um, he has some data across um, the world on death rates, for example, um, as a result of war. And then Stephen Blank's war, um, Constant Battles, looks more at this sort of archaeological evidence. But all of them come to the same conclusion. War has been very frequent and very severe. Um, it's important for evolutionary biologists because it leads to very high male death rates. It depends on who you speak to. In Keeley's book, it's up to 60% in some cases in uh, New Guinea, for example. Sam Bowles will tell you that actually, if you look at the data more closely, it ranges from 13 to 15% of men, um, on average, in indigenous societies, die as a result of war. Now, that may not sound like much, but the figure for us in uh, Western civilization in the 20th century, the bloody 20th century, including the world wars, was 1%. So these are very significant uh, male death rates, which we would imagine would potentially um, lead to very significant evolutionary selection pressures on adaptations for war, for intergroup conflict. So it looks to be the case that intergroup conflict has been a, a major force in, in human social organization. And you may be aware that this actually flies in the face of a lot of uh, popular anthropology, uh, or popular ideas in anthropology, I should say, which dominated um, since the Second World War. So <clears throat> what would these selection pressures due to conflict mean? Well, there's actually already quite a nicely worked out hypothesis which comes from Richard Alexander in his book, The Biology of Moral Systems, which was published in 1987. And he said that uh, the problem for humans, um, as they grew into larger groups, was not um, the trials of the environment so much, 
or predation from animals, but predation from other human groups. And he argued that the only way to protect yourself from exploitative other groups is to increase your group size, to maintain the balance of power. Another phrase which rings very nicely with a lot of the political science literature. Um, and that these large group sizes were essentially the only way um, to ensure or increase your um, ability to defend your community. And that group cooperation was essential to improving effective defense, but also offense in this intergroup uh, conflict. But his point really was that as groups get very large, it becomes very hard to keep them together for exactly the kinds of reasons that Robin was saying, that um, humans perhaps have a sort of natural group size which is relatively small. But if you're threatened by neighboring groups which are much larger than you, then you have a very strong imperative to become even larger than that. But how are you going to hold those people together? And Alexander argued that this is where we see the origins of what he called moralizing gods. Uh, moralizing gods were those who were um, very strict about your behavior and conforming to group norms um, in the pursuit of defense um, of your society. And this was essential to promote cohesion um, in the society and avoid it splitting. So that's a nice idea. Um, it's particularly interesting because it leads, if you look around the world as a sort of ecology of, of group size, if you like, um, you can explain any group size because it's going to be a result of the local balance of power. Maybe you don't need to be that big. Anyway, <clears throat> the dark side of this in-group cooperation is that within-group cooperation enables uh, more effective between-group conflicts. And he was particularly interesting in, interested in the morality uh, of these moralizing gods, which leads to this in-group morality, which by definition almost leads to out-group hostility because defining your own in-group morals, um, he argued, um, we're going to have to differ from the morals uh, perceived to be uh, important in the other group. And then Keeley, who I already mentioned in his book, he sort of notes that warfare is ultimately not a denial of the human capacity for social cooperation, but merely the most destructive expression of it. And if you think about the collective action problem of war, it's very significant. So collective action in hunting is already quite hard. Why would I bother giving up my time to go and hunt a mammoth? Um, think about warfare, where you might get killed or injured. It's the sort of supreme collective action problem. Um, and perhaps the um, act of uh, becoming a warrior and, and uh, fighting is the highest level of cooperation we observe anywhere um, in human society. Nice idea. Is there any evidence to back up Alexander's hypothesis? This is a study I did a few years ago looking at the standard cross-cultural sample, which is an anthropological database of 186 societies around the world, all pre-industrial. So again, we're interested in looking at um, indigenous um, religions and religions that haven't been particularly influenced by modern society as a window onto our evolutionary past. Ideally, these would be societies similar to the Pleistocene societies that we evolved in. Um, some of them are more recent than that, but it's a database uh, to start with. What's interesting about this database is they have this variable pre-coded by other researchers in the past called high gods. And this is a measure of how moralizing uh, those gods are in society. So one means um, there are gods, but they're not particularly interested in human affairs. And at the other end you have um, moralizing gods who are extremely interested and observance and punishing of um, norms in that society. So if you like, it's how much God cares about how you conform to group norms. 
There's a lot of debates about these variables, and Ara, who's talking next, um, has a project to try and refine these. But again, it's a database which allows us to make start testing these ideas. So there is support for Alexander's thesis on both sides of it. On the in-group cooperation side, uh, I found that moralizing gods, the variable I just showed you, was a significant correlate to several indices of cooperation, uh, including norm compliance, um, the loans and use of abstract money, which of course relies on significant degrees of trust, on central sanctions and police and payment of taxes. In another study, uh, Rose and Raymond's um, looked specifically at the outgroup conflict parts. Okay, so we have Alexander's bit here where moralizing gods seem to improve cooperation within societies. What about the outgroup part? Well, they found that moralizing gods are linked to outgroup war. In societies where there is more outgroup war, they are more likely to have moralizing gods. And secondly, moralizing gods were also linked to larger societies. I found this too. Um, that when societies were larger, they were more likely to have moralizing gods. So Alexander's thesis seems to be supported by a very large sample of cross-cultural data Now that's all very well, but um, one thing that hasn't been fleshed out very much is the sort of uh, mechanisms underlying this. So the idea is that um, religion is somehow helping us fight wars. And the question is, how? And that's what I've become interested in. And if you just go through some uh, desirable traits that you might think we would want in warriors or soldiers, um, I think religion seems to um, offer some very useful solutions. So. Perhaps the most important that you'll hear from, from military people is to develop strong unit cohesion. Um, it's an adaptive problem, if you like, because it's very hard to attain, but it's well known to be essential for combat effectiveness. And this has been um, shown from wars in the past to wars of today. And religion offers a very useful uh, solution to promoting unit cohesion through um, very powerful rituals and notions of brotherhood. Now, the military do this in their own way, of course. But the idea that we're uh, proposing is that religion does it better. What else? You might want them not to be afraid of the enemy and to believe that uh, victory is possible. So you have a problem here in overcoming soldiers' fear in battle, and there's lots of data that show that many soldiers uh, won't actually fire their weapon in their first encounter. So there is uh, a lot of training devoted to overcoming um, these uh, initial fears. And religion, again, offers um, some solutions to that in faith and confidence and so on. You get the idea. Um, this one is about the idea that uh, performance will be rewarded, um, being willing to endure great sacrifice and willing to die if necessary. Um, that's a lot, a lot to ask of people. Um, but the role of supernatural punishment and reward uh, will certainly perhaps help um, in achieving those uh, attributes. And then finally, this one, which perhaps might become one of the important themes in this conference, is the in-group, out-group dimension. So ideally, you would want your soldiers to believe they're fighting for the forces of good, they're fighting against the forces of evil, and there's an adaptive problem there because you want people to maintain purpose, sacrifice for the group, hatred for the enemy, willingness to kill, and discourage sympathy for the enemy, and avoid de de defection. Um, easy to say, extremely hard to do in practice. Um, but the in-group, out-group rhetoric of, of um, many religions at some times and as exploited by some leaders is very powerful at doing that. And of course the dichotomy of good and evil is, as we know, a very uh, powerful motivating force whether or not it's, it's valid. So you get the idea. Um, do we have any evidence to back up these mechanisms? Well, we have a bit. Um, 
So I've simplified that last table um, to four things. So the first desirable trait we can look at is this business of unit cohesion and the potential role of, of religion in uh, promoting rituals that improve unit cohesion and, if you like, in-group uh, cooperation. Um, and as I said, war is a very um, a significant collective action problem. The group itself may benefit from defense or offense, but individuals are going to be better off if, if they stay at home and other people go and fight the war. Now, fighting may pay off for individuals if, as long as there is a critical mass. And again, I'm agreeing with Robin here that um, there can be individual benefits from group action. Nothing group selection is doing. <coughs> but how do you overcome that group action, collective action problem? We might all benefit, but I'm still even better off if I stay at home and everyone else does the fighting. Well, there's various ways of doing this. You can raise the expected benefits over the expected costs. Uh, it's not always possible, and the, the, the reason we have these collective action problems is because that difference is all, not always very large. Um, you can punish free riders, but again, as Robin said, that has problems of its own. But significantly, um, one method of um, improving willingness to participate in collective action problems is uh, signals of commitment. And we've already heard about Richard Sosis. Um, he also did a very nice study published a couple of years ago in Evolution and Human Behavior, looking very specifically at the role of costly signals in war. Now, he looks cross-culturally again. It's a different data set to the one I showed you before. This is from the Human Relations and Area Files um, of about 60 religions around the world, again, indigenous societies. And what he found is that if you look at their initiation rites, which have different levels of costs, involved, you find that um, the cost of those initiation rights are much higher among societies where warfare is common as compared to where warfare is less common. Um, here they distinguish them by more or less than every two years. But there was a significant difference. And um, if you look into the details and you look again at the cost ratings and then look at what kinds of conflicts are being fought, he finds that um, again, here's this sort of basic difference where there's very little warfare, you have um, very low cost of initiation rights. By the way, by costs I mean pain and um, suffering. So a lot of them are very extreme, um, enduring um, very long processes of, of suffering or scarification, um, piercing, and that kind of thing. Um, but then you, here are the collections of data where there are um, different types of war. And not a big difference between them, but his point here was that um, you get the highest costs where it's inter-linguistic um, conflict, I think, is the, different, the definition of external warfare. Internal warfare, which might be you know, my clan against our neighbouring clan that we normally get along with. You do have high costs, but they're not quite as high as the external warfare, the other. So some supportive evidence that religion, well, I say religion, in these societies there is no distinction between religion and everyday life. So these initiation rites have what we would probably um, agree at, uh, as sort of components. They wouldn't necessarily call them religious themselves. But this is supposed to be some evidence that um, uh, religion is related to war in such a way that it promotes cooperation um, in order to fight those wars more effectively. Uh, Robin always already showed this data. <coughs> Uh, it's a slightly different uh, chart of the same study, and my point was um, purely just to say that, uh, as Robin said, there's something special about religion. If you increase the number of costly requirements in a secular um, organization, it does not improve cooperation or commune duration. 
Um, if you improve the number of costly signals in religious groups, it does improve commune duration and uh, by implication cooperation. Um, as Robin said, we don't really know why. I think uh, the most likely explanation is that if you're a religious believer, then the perceived costs are very low. If you're an outsider, you want to get in, but you don't actually believe in the, uh, in, in, in the group's <coughs> religious beliefs, then those costs actually do seem really significant. But if I believe I'll be punished by supernaturation for not part participating in, in those uh, costly actions, then um, I, in my own mind, think I should. So I think it might be about perceived costs and benefits. That, uh, we don't really know, and that's a very important area for future research. Okay, so that was a little about uh, ritual. I'm going to zoom through number two and three, just uh, to keep it short. I think this is very important. Um, there was a nice paper by Richard Rang a few years ago called Is Military Incompetence Adaptive? It's very hard to tell from that title what the paper is about. But basically he argued that you know, fighting a war is very hard because you might get killed, you might get injured. How on earth do you get people to do this? It's the collective action problem again. And he argued that, well, one great way of doing it is to be really confident that you're going to win. If you're really confident that you're going to win, then your perceived uh, costs and benefits are going to be a little different. You're going to be happy to fight. And I actually spent five years investigating this hypothesis in a sort of modern political context, um, looking at confidence and war, and when you get overconfidence. And the ar argument of the book is today it's very bad because it often leads to wars which um, um, uh, the perpetrators probably should not have fought. Um, but there is actually a lot of good evidence, which I won't go into now, that um, overconfidence can be adaptive because it encourages you to do things more effectively than if you tried to do them reluctantly um, and less effectively. Um, so I'm not going to go into that today, but there's a lot of good evidence, gathering evidence, that um, confidence is very powerful at uh, promoting effective action. Um, and religion, of course, is one very powerful motivator of uh, confidence. Um, effort and sacrifice, again, extremely briefly, um, there haven't been any studies specifically on whether um, expected supernatural wars and punishments will um, affect people's inter-conflict behaviour, although you could argue that uh, suicide terrorism is one very glaring example. Um, but it, in terms of experimental um, science, this is a paper by Azim Sharif and Ara Norenzayan, who we're going to hear from next. Um, which was a very nice study showing that in a very simple economic game people were more cooperative if they were primed with supernatural concepts and this included atheists, um, I believe, right? Yeah, so um, other, things other things promote cooperation as well but supernatural primes do do it. So there's uh, gathering evidence, this is just one example, that um, uh, primes subliminal primes of um, potential supernatural rewards and punishments do improve people's cooperation behavior. Um, okay, I'll spend a little bit more time on this one. Again, I think it's very important to the theme of, of tolerance and intolerance. This business of willingness to kill. Um, this is a book by uh, an army psychiatrist um, called Dave Grosman on killing. And um, he argued that it's very hard to get people to kill other human beings. If you speak to David Buss, um, he might disagree. But um, his experience from the military was that um, people have a hard time killing other human beings. And you have to um, actually overcome some sort of barrier or threshold um, to allow them to do it. 
And again, this is something which is um, a key part of um, military training, that people are not going to happily kill other human beings until they've been trained um, to do so. This is a famous example um, of an experiment on this idea, which I think Richard Dawkins talks about in his book. We've got it from there. Um, he gave Israeli schoolchildren um, a scenario, one which was, I believe, uh, an exact translation from the Bible about the Battle of Jericho, where God tells Joshua to, to kill everyone inside. And he <coughs> then had an alternative um, treatment group where he had exactly the same text, but he replaces Joshua's name for General Lin, fictional environment. And what he found is when you ask Israeli schoolchildren whether Joshua um, was legitimate in killing everyone inside, two-thirds of them approved. And the treatment group where I was a fictional character with nothing to do with their own religion, all of a sudden three-quarters of them disapproved. So it's always difficult to know how much to read into these kinds of experiments. But um, what's interesting is a very subtle switch actually changed um, condoning very significant uh, behaviour um, into condemnation. This is a, a more recent um, social psychological study uh, published in Psychological Science. Again, sort of asking the same thing in a controlled uh, setting with adults. And I won't go into all the details, but basically what they did is gave people again a text um, where God was sanctioning violence. And then they had a separate experimental paradigm where people had the opportunity to punish someone else for a separate game. And what you find is that, um, let's focus on this group here with the people who were uh, believers. They were much more aggressive when they had read the passage in which God sanctioned violence as opposed to the treatment group where there was a similar passage read by with no mention of God. And so this is the key experimental difference. And you find this even among uh, atheists. This aggression measure, by the way, was not just a survey, this was whether they pushed the button to cause a horrible noise in the headphones of their experimental partner, following the so-called noise blast paradigm. So following on George Tamarin's experiment, there's some new experimental evidence to support the idea that um, um, a supernatural agent sanctioning violence, um, again, at a pretty subliminal level, um, does increase people's propensity to aggression. Um, this is sort of a tangent, but I thought perhaps potentially important for the conference that this is a study of uh, gangs. And um, this author, Lin, found that um, when the enemy was thought of as evil and bad, the fight was conceived of as a fight in self-defense, even though the enemy had not made the first move. So, I haven't put these ideas into a very um, neat order, but it seems to me that this business of in-group, out-group, um, good, evil, um, is very significant. Not only because it helps to dehumanize the enemy, um, increases the propensity for aggression, um, perhaps enables people to harm or kill where they otherwise would not, um, but also, in this conception of evil and bad, um, allows people to believe that their own provocative actions are actually conducted in self-defense. And we can all think of uh, contemporary examples of that. Okay, <clears throat> how am I doing for time? You're still okay? We've got about almost 10 minutes. Okay, that's perfect. Okay, a little case study. So this is all very well. Um, little bits of evidence, no coherent story yet. Um, something I'm working on. 
But there is um, a recent study of Islam which seems to support some of these ideas. Um, this is the work of Richard Gabriel. Does anyone know Richard Gabriel is a military historian? Um, this is an article in Military History Quarterly and then a, his follow-up book. And the book is all about Muhammad and the origins of Islam. And I'm going to summarize it uh, very quickly, but his basic argument is that people focus on Muhammad as a religious leader and omit the fact that he was a brilliant military leader. And he argues that there was a very powerful interaction between um, the religion that he developed and its military effectiveness. So prior to Muhammad, um, the desert regions were a mixture of uh, city um, dwellers and uh, nomads who weren't very cooperative with each other, had very different systems of fighting. And Muhammad essentially brought them together into a unified army. And just going through this table again, um, he argues that um, the idea of the Islamic Brotherhood and the Islamic community was extremely powerful in promoting uh, unit cohesion in the Arab armies of the Arab conquest, which were extremely successful in conquering um, the Persian Gulf and well beyond. Um, belief in victory, again, uh, he cites as very important in the belief that although they may lose the battle today, the ultimate victory will be theirs. So again, this was very strongly supported in his analysis. This business of reward and punishment, um, we all know about this now because of um, the popularity of um, studies of suicide terrorism, that the origins of Islam contain uh, very many specific ideas about um, the likely supernatural consequences of your actions in battle. They are complex, as everyone wants to, to understand, but certainly they um, help um, with effort and sacrifice required in uh, war. Um, willingness to kill, again, again a controversial topic, but there are certainly uh, interpretations of Islam where um, Islamic warriors, uh, let's say they have this barrier to killing other people, might be reduced somewhat um, given certain Islamic interpretations of um, legitimate enemies. <coughs> And the other point, which was not in my original list, but which turned out to be extremely important, was simply leadership. That Muhammad declared himself and was uh, believed by others to be God's messenger. And you can imagine how that uh, significantly influenced uh, his military leadership as well. If we believed that Petraeus was God's messenger, then I'm sure uh, we'd have even more cooperation and um, subordination to authority than we might already do. So, a little case study without really telling you a lot of the details, but uh, very interesting um, in that it supports this idea that while we're all focused in the 21st century on the role of religion in the causes of war and the causes of terrorism, aside from that, um, it seems to be a pr promoter of military effectiveness, irrespective of that question of causes. Um, very briefly, um, I think this is very important today. So I mentioned at the start that something can be an adaptation and it may or may, may not be adaptive today. Um, you could find lots of examples of um, religious leaders taking us into wars which we um, might have been ill-advised uh, to carry out. But in addition, there's no reason to suppose that these um, traits um, help us today. And that's not only um, on the enemy side, but also on our own side, we'll come to it in a minute. But 
what's interesting is that these might be even more important in the kinds of conflicts we see today, like insurgency, like in terrorism. <coughs> the problem here, and this is again a political science perspective, is that there's a massive imbalance of power. Um, if you're Bin Laden, you can't carry out a conventional war against the United States um, because of the imbalance of power, because of logistics. It's not possible. Maybe you can carry out a guerrilla war, but terrorism and insurgency are not usually even guerrilla wars because yours even weaker than that. You don't have the, the power or capability to carry out a guerrilla war. So instead, you have to turn to insurgency and terrorism. And religion might be particularly important here. It might help you in a conventional war. But think about uh, being a tiny minority. There's absolutely no possibility of taking on and winning against a superpower. Well, religion perhaps permits an otherwise impossible fight because of this incredible strong cohesion and willingness to participate against the odds. Um, this potential belief in ultimate victory, even if it remains you know, utterly distant or um, apparently impossible. And you can even have uh, greater causes beyond the war themselves, salvation, afterlife beliefs and so on. The willingness to deal is, is clearly important today. Um, and in this article, just recently published in International Security by Michael Horowitz, and he makes this point, which I think is very important, that war itself, and not victory, uh, can be an end if you are a true believer. Um, and although these things are very detrimental uh, to a lot of people, they may nevertheless uh, help that individual, that group, that organization fight more effectively. Um, these are American soldiers praying together before they go on patrol in Baghdad. And uh, one of the interesting things to me is that, particularly in this kind of conflict, um, religion seems to have become extremely important to the individual soldiers on the ground. This is a book by a guy called Stephen Mansfield, uh, who I think has a political agenda, but a very interesting book called The Faith of the American Soldier. And he talks about the widespread uh, religious beliefs among soldiers in Iraq, and talks about how, you know, this is the thing we all sort of assume, the, the no atheist in a foxhole idea, that religion is about coping with the horrible dilemmas of war and seeing your friend get blown up next to you. But also, um, apparently, um, being very important in military effectiveness as well. And we don't really have any good evidence of this, except that um, post-traumatic stress disorder of, among troops returning from Iraq is about 25%, much higher than Vietnam. And there's a very nice study showing that the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder is lower among those soldiers who believed what they were doing was right. So, at the very least, there's some um, indirect evidence that um, if you happen to be a religious believer and you believe that what you're doing is condoned by your religion, then you're more likely to cope um, with that horrible uh, uh, tour in Iraq or Afghanistan. Okay, to conclusions. There's just two slides of conclusions, and I think hopefully we'll be about on time. So, <clears throat> to summarise, religion may be an adaptation for war. There's lots of issues here. Individual selection, group selection. Um, has there been enough time for it to uh, adapt? Is it genetic selection? Is it gene culture for evolution? Um, is it the type of selection uh, Richard talks about before, the Darwinian selection, if you like, of ideas or strategies? Don't know. But war is the mother of all collective action problems, and maybe it required a special solution. <clears throat> There's a compelling adaptive logic, which um, you can find in Alexander's hypothesis with some support for that. And then there's additional support about the specific mechanisms, which I went through a few examples of. Um, certainly continues to be exploited effectively today, religion, 
continues to be exploited effectively today. Um, think about Bush's rhetoric um, for the aftermath there. Um, of course, religion is very complex, multifaceted, non-exclusive, there are many exceptions and so on. Um, so I'm not arguing that all religion is about intergroup conflict, but that some important elements are, or maybe. I mentioned this briefly before. The causes of war question, I'm not talking about the causes of war. I'm only talking about military effectiveness, but I should note that if religion is an adaptation to intergroup conflict, it may actually define when we should fight as well as how. So you can imagine ecological circumstances, for example, when the cost-benefit ratio tips in such a way that it becomes adaptive to fight. So you could imagine that an adaptive story of religion as an intergroup uh, conflict adaptation would entail some ideas about when we should expect to see uh, violence, which would be a cause of the war argument. And <clears throat> final slide, I think this perspective at least potentially resolves a paradox. So my students, for example, um, are very confused about the role of religion because it seems to promote both cooperation and conflict. It depends on where you look, when you look, who you're looking at, and so on. Um, it clearly promotes both cooperation and conflict in different circumstances. But I think this is perfectly consistent once viewed at the relevant level. Cooperation um, is largely within groups and conflict is largely between them, almost by definition. But what I'm saying here is that explicitly within religions. Religions are good at promoting cooperation within the group. They're not good at promoting cooperation between groups. And religion is, um, I don't want to say good at promoting conflicts, um, you know what I mean, between groups. <laughs> it's also good at promoting conflict within them as well. That's another tool. Um, and these are my final two points. So there's a very strong basis in psychology here, and that's social identity theory, which I think we'll hopefully hear more about from the psychologists later. Um, but it fits in very nicely with this, right? Because we know that people identify very heavily within groups, the so-called minimum group paradigm. The psychologists will tell you if we split the room down the middle here, and then you guys go off and you guys go off to do some sort of competitive task, we'll very quickly start becoming in-groupish and believing your own group is better than the other group, completely uh, based on arbitrary divisions. Very strong in-group favoritism and out-group disfavor. This is perhaps one of the best uh, established psychological biases we know, very powerful, um, and it explains um, perhaps this paradoxical role of religion. The only thing I would add is that I think this might have um, origins in our evolution, that given our history of war, religion, in addition to other things, promotes in-group cooperation that aids intergroup conflict, and that is likely to have been extremely adaptive, at least in the past. Thank you very much. So just some general comments. So, well, thanks, Dominic, for this extremely interesting talk. And so one thing I really like about uh, your approach to conflict in general and this uh, warfare or competition or religion connection in particular is that it offers this nice antidote to that standard social science model um, of intergroup violence. So there's a common assumption going back, I think, to, um, to Lorenz that intergroup aggression is this maladaptive side effect of other cognitive or cultural traits. Maladaptive is either in in the context of the present selective environment or in the past, and usually it's talked about as in the case of both. So until rather recently, the received view in the humanities and the social sciences rejected this notion that intergroup violence was an adaptive ancestral trait that we carry over from a common ancestor that we share with chimpanzees, or that evolved you know, independently in the human lineage since it's split from the apes. 
Now, precisely why this sort of maladaptive byproduct view has been so dominant is not entirely clear to me. So one obvious reason just relates to this initial lack of ethological and ethnographic evidence, which really has only rather recently uh, begun to mount. Um, but I can also think of two popular, um, albeit fallacious, assumptions, which I think sociologically speaking may be motivating factors behind uh, the standard view. So the first is this general ethical worry that in claiming that violence is adaptive, we're implicitly saying that it's morally excusable or justifiable. Uh, but of course, this is deeply misguided, holding that a psychological disposition or some behavioral trait is an adaptation. It's just simply to make this uh, descriptive, retrospective causal claim that a trait proliferated uh, due to one or more of its effects. It doesn't imply or suggest that a trait is good or coincides with what humans value. Nothing is good by virtue of being the product of a selection process, whether natural or otherwise. And of course, regardless, the ethical implications of some empirical claim have absolutely no bearing on this truth. Um, the second assumption that I think underlies this reluctance to view intergroup uh, violence as adaptive relates uh, to this wrong-headed notion of being adaptation, a trait has to be genetic in origin. Um, but this is simply incorrect, I think, because the concept of adaptation, whether it's referring to a cumulative selection process or the product uh, of that process, remains agnostic to the mechanism of inheritance. So, you know, culturally transmitted behaviors can be adaptations as well, so you don't have to rely on uh, the idea that well, these, these religious traits uh, uh, are genetic in origin. And a good example is the, you know, the ability to manufacture fire. This is probably very critical uh, to early human evolution, but it doesn't have a specific genetic origin apart from the more general um, uh, genes that are underlying this more general ability to acquire and transmit complex cultural behaviors. Um, so to say that violence is an adaptive behavior or that religion is adaptive because it promotes behaviors such as violence doesn't imply that it has a genetic basis, and in fact, to be a proper uh, candidate for evolutionary explanation, the trait not only doesn't have to be genetic, but doesn't even have, even have to be the product of selection. All it has to do is involve a system of variation and heredity, and I think both military and religious uh, systems seem to fit this bill, so it makes sense to apply evolutionary analysis. So we're dealing with two interesting and controversial claims here. First, that coalitional violence was adapted, and second, that religious, religion facilitates coalitional violence or aggression or competition. Um, and I think thanks to a lot of recent work in ethology and evolutionary anthropology, we now have to really take seriously this idea that mass killing and even possibly ethnic cleansing uh, and genocide may have adaptive origins. And likewise, uh, for the possibility that religion may play a role, either directly or indirectly, um, either for selective or incidental reasons in facilitating these behaviors. So I have lots of questions, but I'm really just going to ask one and maybe one very minor one. Um, uh, since I work in the Center for Science-Related Ethics, I'm going to ask an ethics-oriented question. So, and it's really a methodological question, in a sense. So, as I mentioned ago, adaptive stories are essentially, if they're, you know, regardless of whether they're true, they're just simply that. They're causal stories. They're narratives of the past that explain the origin and proliferation of some trait. Um, but how does a reconstruction of, of a past history of selection allow us to better predict and control something like violence um, in the future? So it would seem that if our goal is to reduce the incidence of antisocial uh, behavior, information about the proximate causes of a trait, right, or how a trait emerges during uh, uh, the lifetime or development of the organism, renders any information about its ultimate evolutionary causes irrelevant. So to analogize, you know, if I wanted to figure out what my old university uh, roommate was up to nowadays, I'd give him a call or I'd ask his neighbors, but I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't go, you know, go dig up our university era correspondence to try to reconstruct the past in order to make an educated guess about uh, you know, what he's doing in the present. 
Um, so apart from seeking a true account of the origins of violence, which I admit will be, would be extremely interesting in its own right, um, it, assuming that our goal is harm prevention, uh, so my question is, you know, what does the evolutionary information give us um, that the proximate information is lacking? Um, and then my very minor question was actually about the, the, the Bushman study, and I'm just wondering, uh, so this was the study where uh, if you're primed for God uh, sanctioned violence, you're more likely to react aggressively with higher levels of aggression uh, than if you're not. Um, and I'm wondering, have they compared that with human authority sanctioned violence versus supernatural sanctioned violence versus friend versus, I, I don't know, just mix it up a little bit to see if there's some really special effect uh, to the supernatural element to it. Uh, Oh, thanks. Okay, thanks. Well, first of all, that was a great summary of uh, some really important points there, which um, you did much better than I. Um, okay, it's a good question. <clears throat> what does an evolutionary account add, if anything, to this? Um, and uh, in the same direction you were going, I would refer to Nico Tinberg, and he said, to understand any behavior, we have to understand four things. We have to understand its ultimate or, um, function. What's it for? It's proximate mechanism, what causes us to carry out this behavior. Um, it's uh, developmental biology, what, how do we acquire this um, and uh, how does it develop. And fourthly, it's phylogenetic history, where does it come from, what do we share with other uh, species. All of those are very important. I think the, the reason they're important is because, I agree with you, it's the proximate mechanisms we want to focus on. For example, things like endorphins. Are there predictors? which will enable us to prevent um, potential conflict. Um, I would say that the evolutionary story is very important for formulation of hypotheses. And without good uh, evolutionary theory, often we're just not asking the right questions about the proximate mechanisms. That's one thing. Um, the other thing I would say um, is that it's a lot to do with ecology. So we've, we're talking about um, adaptive behavior and evolutionary history, but very few behaviours are fixed, they're contingent on circumstances. So it's not about behaviour necessarily, but about behavioural ecology. And I think we'll only understand where and when violence is likely to be triggered, when those proximate mechanisms are likely to be triggered, if we have a good understanding of the ecological context which um, gave rise to the origins of those behaviours in the first place. Otherwise we might not understand the cues and so on. Um, so they're, they're my sort of two reactions to that. Maybe I can have some help from... Uh, other evolutionists in the audience. Um, the, the, the second question about um, Bushmen who are um, uh, who tend to believe more in supernatural sanctions, uh, being more aggressive. I, I don't know uh, anything about that, so I would defer to the audience to, to answer that question. Um, but the, the one thing I would say, perhaps, is individual ethnographies are extremely important, but. Um, I like the cross-cultural approach because there's always going to be statistical exceptions, and I like to look at you know what's it, what's going on on average. Um, but exceptions can be instructive too. 